The off-season news just keeps on coming. We'll talk all about it next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 26th. It's show number four of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Dexter Fowler, Giancarlo Stanton, and more National League newsmakers, and news from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at the crazy outfield situation in Oakland, Miguel Cabrera may be moving back to the hot corner, and a new starting pitcher in Baltimore. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Dodgers right-handed pitching prospect Jose de Leon. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at how Josh Hamilton's latest injury affects the Texas outfield and how Washington plans to fill the Ian Desmond hole. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Javier Baez and Doug Fister. In our preseason forecaster position profile segment, Greg Fishwick looks at American League outfielders. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the HBP of HBP. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Dexter Fowler is a free agent. No, wait, he's an Oriole. No, wait, he's a Cub again. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, it's our League Watch News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. The story of the week has to be the Dexter Fowler situation. Of course, uh, he was ostensibly traded to Baltimore, where he was going to take over an outfield role there. Then uh, something went awry, and uh, his agent issued a furious denunciation of the media and the uh, and the Cubs for announcing this trade before it actually happened. And in the long and the short of it, here's Dexter Fowler, who was a free agent. Then he was outside in Baltimore. Now he's back with the Cubs. What goes on here? Yeah, a, stra- a strange situation, certainly. I-, I believe, as I was reading somewhere, that the, the hitch in all of this uh, may have been uh, uh, Fowler wanting an opt-out clause after the first year of his contract in Baltimore, and they didn't want to give him that or something like that. But at any rate, he's back in the Cubs on a one-year deal. So uh, that's the sort of thing where it suggests that uh, Fowler thinks he's going to have a terrific year and maybe more worth more in the marketplace after this year uh, than he would if he took a longer-term deal. So, uh, interesting. It- uh, but that pre- presents all kinds of uh, playing time um, uh, ripples in Chicago. Uh, Fowler will uh, likely be back in the in the uh, start in center field. He will hit leadoff for the Cubs. Uh, Jason Hayward then shifts to right field, and you get a platoon in left field uh, with Kyle Schwarber and uh, uh, and Solar. So uh, probably Solar is going to be the big playing time loser in that because he'll play just against left-handers now. Um, maybe some playing time loss for Schwarber, who'll be uh, in a part in a part of that platoon. But Schwarber could also be bumped down. They really want Schwarber to be a catcher in Chicago. And so he might find himself with more catching time and, and uh, Miguel Montero losing a bit of playing time. Well, if, if Schwarber ends up behind the plate, I think that's probably bad news for the Cubs pitchers. Uh, it may be good news for uh, Kyle Schwarber owners if he reacquires that catcher eligibility. Of course, it gives him a huge amount of added value, but how long can the Cubs put up with uh, what is really going to be some substandard defense from Kyle Schwarber behind the plate? Right, yeah, that's a real question. I, my guess is they won't put up with it long. I mean, this is a team that really wants to contend this year, and if they see themselves getting into losing situations because of... Uh, the way Schwarber is handling the pitchers or because of his defense behind the plate, uh, I think they'll make a change very quickly and restrict him to outfield duty. Well, that Cubs lineup can really hit, and uh, and if Dexter Fowler's sitting at the top of it, he has a career 360 bat, uh, on-base percentage, draws a ton of walks. He's double, consistently double-digit walk rates, and uh, boy, Dexter Fowler looks like a get for the Chicago Cubs if you're looking at outfield prospects for this year's draft. And uh in the past, he's been something of a disappointment, but he seems to think, as you said, that he's going to have a big year, and uh, I would bet the extra dollar on that, Nick. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, he's not going to go very high in drafts anyway because he's been viewed as a disappointment, 
simply because we expected so much of him, I think. And But in reality, he's been a fairly solid ball player. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where the, the, the market value has one perception. And in fact, uh, Fowler, if you take him, take him at face value, take him for what he is, uh, he's probably a fairly valuable fantasy player. One of our favorite columnists at Baseball HQ is Doug Dennis, our bullpen buyer's guide columnist, and this week he has his Lima targets. I think all the skills guys are writing about Lima targets for the year. And in particular, Doug is focusing on non-closer relievers who might be worth uh, the extra dollar here or the extra dollar there. And one of the names might not be familiar to a lot of listeners. In Arizona, the relief pitcher Silvio Bracco. Uh, Silvio Bracco, you know, have you, have you heard of this guy before? Um uh, I have Certainly not. Certainly, someone to keep an eye on. I, you know, this is the this is the kind of thing that Doug Dennis does for us in, in finding uh, outstanding skill sets that can get sort of buried in, in a pen and then suddenly show up uh, in prominent spots as the season progresses. Silvio Bracco at this point projects twenty nine innings pitched to two point nine five xera, one point one zero whip, uh, nine point nine strikeouts per nine innings, five point three command. So of all the relievers that Doug talks about in that column that are Lima relievers that are not closers, he is, has the top skill set. And, and the other thing that, uh, that Doug points out is that uh, he may be at the bottom of the pecking order at this point in Arizona, but uh, the closers in front of him are, are, are not uh, entirely solid. I mean, you've got Brad Ziegler, who's okay, uh, Dan Hudson, who's uh, pretty good too, uh, but you've got a terrific skill set in Bracco who could climb the... Uh, climb the, the depth chart very quickly. Might be a great pickup on a reserve round or uh, at, for one buck at the end of a draft. And especially in keeper leagues where the closer situation is more volatile over time, you get a young guy like this, he could be a terrific get for down the road as well as contributing this year as a lemur reliever. Someone to definitely keep an eye on and, and someone if you go into a draft that your, your draft mates may not have even heard of. Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com has been covering starting pitching for a long time and uh, He's also looking at Lima targets among starters, and one of the names that jumped out at me was a guy who's pitching for a pretty poor team, it looks like, the Cincinnati Reds. Anthony DiSclefani of the Reds made Stephen Nickran's Lima screen. He did indeed, and if you look at the reason for that is Anthony DiSclefani got better and better as the year wore on last year. So it's one of those situations where if you're basing a draft entirely upon what you saw in his, his, his basic stats, uh, maybe not so much, but... Anthony Disclefani just kept getting better and better as the year progressed. Second half last year, BPV in July, 54. BPV in August, 142. BPV in September, 163. So the skills kept getting better and better. The results weren't exactly there. Um, Disclefani has some problems with home runs in, uh, in Cincinnati, and certainly their ballpark uh, tends to, tends to uh, push in that direction. A 19 home run per fly rate. In the month of August, 15% home run per fly rate in July. So those things kind of kind of mask what was an excellent development in terms of his skill set. Second half last year, 4.43 ERA, but a 3.53 XERA. So here's a guy that certainly has the skills, perhaps, to be a real breakout target this year. But as you pointed out, the team is not going to be very good, uh, and that could pose some uh, some issues. Yeah, they're uh, they're going to be a pretty poor team, and you can see that the chance of them winning a lot of games is probably fairly small, which means Anthony DiSclefani figures not to get the kind of number of wins that you'd expect, even if he has a terrific year as an individual. And also with uh, the departure of Aroldis Chapman, the bullpen looks a little shaky as well, so you can see DiSclefani leaving a couple of games, at least leading and having the bullpen blow the situation for him. All that said, especially again in a keeper league, you, you kind of hope that maybe Cincinnati turns it around over time, but when you have a player whose whose actual stats lag his terrific skills it i think it just presents the the greatest kind of buying opportunity and these are the kind of things that steven does really well and uh, he's covering batting this year as well as you know nick and in his lima targets for the national league among batters he focused uh, among others on st louis outfielder randall gritchuk randall gritchuk randall gritchuk is a guy that's got a ter- terrific power profile uh if you look at what he did last season uh, 17, 17 home runs, 323 at-bats, a power index of 202. A huge, huge power index for Randall Grishuk. And uh, at 24 years old, that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, he's going to struggle a bit at the plate. He had 276 last year, but uh, his uh, his XBA was 265. So 
may may have some, and he has some contact issues. I mean, uh, a, a guy that hit, swings as hard as he does, a terrific hard contact rate, but a guy that swings as hard as he does does frequently has contact issues, and we're looking at a 66% contact rate. So that's the that's the kind of bump uh, in the or the fly in the ointment for Grishuk, but uh, certainly a, a a wonderful power target in that St. Louis outfield, especially if he gets a full uh, a full season at bats. I was just looking through his 2015 monthly statistics, and what's really encouraging is that every month his power index was uh, uh, 180 or higher. The lowest it was was 180, which is which is double uh, league average pretty much. And he had several months in which his power was way over 200, which is dub- which is more than double league average. I-, I like that consistency, but on the other hand, Nick, as you mentioned, contact challenge players have another disadvantage, as we've discussed in the past here at Baseball HQ Radio, and that is you can't drive in runs if you're striking out, which means even if he does hit 30 home runs, there's a, probably a pretty low ceiling on his RBIs. Right, I think that's true. Because of the strikeout rate, that's, uh, uh, that's certainly something to keep in mind. I'd like to see him draw a few more walks. He teased us in September at 10%, but uh, most of the rest of the year, 4%, 5%. Uh, Indicates he's not being real selective up there at the plate, which is probably why they get him out so easily throwing pitches that he can't hit. Uh, finally, one of the big names in the early experts drafts that has been generating a lot of conversation has been Giancarlo Stanton. He went, I think, sixth or seventh overall in the uh, recent labor mix draft. And uh, there's a lot of people, including Ron Chandler last week here at Baseball HQ Radio, who wonder if Giancarlo Stanton, given the injury risk, is really worth not only a, a number six or number seven pick, but a first-round pick at all. You know, you, you've got to be – Giancarlo Stanton is certainly an intriguing kind of ball player. I mean, we, we keep talking about about 50 home run potential, and certainly he has that. But the most home runs he's ever hit has been 37, and the reason for that has been the injuries. I mean, we're, we're looking at last year, 279 at-bats. Uh, if you go back to uh, – He's gotten uh, gotten 500 bats in 2011, 500 bats in 2014, but the injuries just keep coming for Giancarlo Stanton. And so certainly one of these years, he's going to have a full season when he remains uninjured and stays in the lineup and hits those 50 home runs. But the question is, do you want to bank a first-round draft pick on that uh, at any time? I don't think I would. Uh, that first-round draft pick is too valuable to risk it on someone that was, who's so high risk. Well, Matt Cedarholm covered a lot of uh, this information in his uh, Market Pulse column looking at players who might be over or under-drafted relative to their value. And I think, Nick, he summed it up really well with his last sentence about Stanton. You'll have to take him in the first 20 picks if you want him. And if you do, your entire season will be riding on his health. Is that a bet you want to make? And I think for the prudent... Uh, drafter, I think the answer really has to be no. I think I agree with you. It's a it's a it's a huge risk reward kind of thing, and I think the risk is just too high to take him that high in a draft. If he fell to me at fifteen or sixteen, yeah, then I think I'd consider it. But chances are he's probably not going to because there's something very alluring to people about the potential of fifty home runs. That means he probably will get drafted and very likely might be overdrafted. Having said that, if somebody drafts him sixth or seventh and he does stay in the lineup all year, you are looking at 50 home runs, which is incredibly valuable. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a BaseballHQ.com analyst and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Boy, I was looking at Baseball HQ just... Uh, Earlier this week, and uh, something jumped out at me. I was quite surprised. Uh, according to the headline, Miguel Cabrera could be playing some third base this year. Should I be alarmed, excited? Well, how should I react? Well, what's happening here is apparently Detroit has a lot of very early games in National League parks. I think they open with Miami for a couple. They play Pittsburgh uh, later on in April for a couple games in Pittsburgh, and then in Washington for three games. So they're thinking about ways to get his bat into the lineup, and it looks like the casualty there, for the most part, might be Nick Castellanos. Uh, um, Castellanos will probably go to the bench in NL Park. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting note. 
Well, it would be Victor Martinez who's the beneficiary. We we kind of suspect that Miguel Cabrera is going to be playing somewhere in all those games, if if usually at first base. But it looks like what they're trying to do is open up first base for Victor Martinez to play, and that's why Castellano gets to sit. Yeah, that's right. Martinez is normally the DH. Um, obviously, they think more of his bat, at least right now, than uh, than Castellanos. I think the interesting thing is for for owners playing in twenty five leagues is uh, Miguel Cabrera was seven games early in that. National League Parks would seem to have a shot at qualifying at third base uh, early in the year, say perhaps as early as May. Yeah, that uh, three-game Washington series on the road for Detroit is May 9, 10, 11, which means if even if Cabrera only plays uh, you know, a game here, a game there in those first few, depending on how he does, he could easily be third base eligible for the last 20 weeks of the season. And I think this is a story worth watching for Miguel Cabrera owners or for those who are looking at him as a draft target this year, because if he gets third base eligibility during the season, it makes him quite a bit more valuable. Yeah, it does. I mean, obviously that we're projecting here and there's no way of telling what Detroit's personnel is going to look like early in the season. Uh, Victor Martinez has been a little bit injury prone lately. If he goes on the DL, obviously uh, they're going to move Castellanos back to third in NL parks and put Cabrera at first. But uh, yeah, something to watch. In Oakland, they have an interesting situation building. I know you've been following this as well, Jock. Uh, they first picked up Chris Davis, the outfielder, to provide a little pop, and now they've acquired Chris Coughlin, another National League outfielder. This seems like they're piling up an awful lot of outfielders and DHs, and you covered this in uh, Playing Time Tomorrow. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd just written about the, uh, the playing time ripples and ramifications of the Chris Davis ac- acquisition. I was a little bit surprised that they went out and, uh, and acquired Coglin, uh, who is is has really upped his uh, his value here by going from Chicago, where he was seemingly buried, to Oakland, where it looks like he's a lock for 400 plus at bats against right-handed pitching. And Coglin was pretty good last year. He um, um, he he hit 16 homers and he stole 11 bases and a little over 400 at bats. Um, his uh, underlying metrics, BPI, suggest he could do something like this again and maybe he has a little more upside. But um, where he fits in Oakland is fascinating because he can play left field. He um, That's probably his best position. Um, he's also played a little second base and third base in his career, and he did it again in Chicago. He's, he's not particularly good there defensively. But then again, Oakland's not a very good defensive team, and I could see him playing those positions again this year. Coughlin is an interesting guy to look at on a historical basis as well. For a lot of years, from 2010 to 2013 or so, I think, his hard contact index was well under 100. That is, he was he was making okay contact, which means like around 80%, but because he had such poor hard-hit ball counts, he was not actually getting a very good hard contact index rating. And then for the last two years, all of a sudden, kaboom. In 2014, he jumps up to 102, which is pretty much league average. And then last year, 114. And he hasn't given up really any of the of the contact, you know, four or five points of contact, but he's still around 80%. This looks like a kind of a play that has potential, shall we say. But then the question is, Jock, how does he manage moving from Wrigley Field to Oakland? Yeah, you're right. Um, and if you look at his, his um, ground ball, line drive, fly ball ratio, I mean, that's the real key. Um, um, he, he finally stopped putting the ball on the ground. He's hitting more line drives and more fly balls, and it's showing up in his power metrics and his, uh, his hard hit, uh, his uh, hard contact uh, index. And uh, like uh, th- another thing that, that, that's interesting here is that his patience seems to have, have uh, gotten better. He had a 12% walk rate last year, which... Uh, is the best since his rookie year. I think he was rookie of the year back in 2009. You remember that far back. Um, it was 12% last year. So um, I like Coglin going forward. And you're right, Oakland, Oakland, Oak Co Coliseum, as they call it. Um, hard to say that a couple times fast. <laughs> Up on hitters, but um, I, I would be buying Coglin. I think uh, I'm looking at the ADPs. I see him around 500, and I think that's uh, far too high a number to put on him. The one worrisome sign I see in the statistics there is the, uh, the fly ball percentage you mentioned has been up a tick. He's around 34% last year, still not great. He had a 14% home run per fly ball ratio, which was, again, a pretty big jump from his previous marks around 7 8%, all the way down to 2% actually in 2013. So, I'm not 100% sold that this power spike from last year is real. So I, I don't know. What do you think about the that 
potential for regression on the home run per fly ball front, especially in that big yard? Well, it may not be, but when you also look at his batting average, um, he didn't have much luck last year um, um, hit percent-wise. His expected batting average was in the mid-270s, but he only hit 250, and you're talking about a guy with a pretty good hard contact uh, index. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, th I think they kind of cancel out each other a little bit. Uh, I'm buying because I think he's undervalued. And, of course, everything depends on value. If somebody's willing to take him in the ninth round, you're not going to get him. But if everybody else is waiting till the 22nd, then chances are you will. Uh, a little later on, Jock, in the show, we're going to have Greg Fishwick talking about American League outfielders. And I don't remember if he talks about Chris Coughlin uh, particularly. But I know that one of his themes is it, in that tier of outfielders who have sort of that 10 to $15 value, you need to be looking for guys who do a little bit of everything. And Coughlin seems to fit that mold. Last year, 16 homers, as you mentioned, 11 stolen bases. That's pretty helpful from a guy who is probably going to be rostered as your fourth outfielder. Yeah, and particularly in, in obviously, the deeper the league goes, the, the better he looks. And particularly in leagues that count on base percentage. If he can just raise that batting average just a tad, you know, again, you're talking about a 12% walk rate. Uh, he's going to have a pretty good on base base percentage. And, of course, the only other thing you have to worry about is playing time, given they have you know a cast of thousands out there in the outfield, a lot of choices that they can make. There may be more trades to come and so forth, but he certainly makes for an interesting possibility, especially in American League-only formats. Uh, staying in the, in the American League West, Jock, your bailiwick, and the Angels, your team, uh, they've said that Tyler Skaggs, and a lot of people were looking at Tyler Skaggs with some interest, is going to pitch this year with an innings cap. Now, what does this mean for him personally, and what does it mean for the Angels' rotation? Well, the Angels have actually already announced um, their, their, their five starters, or the, at least the five guys who are ahead in the running right now. Um, Garrett Richards, obviously, he's their, he's their ace. He's probably more of a number two, number three guy. Behind him, you've got Jared Weaver and C.J. Wilson, both, both of whom have seen better years and have uh, they're in the last years of their contracts. And then you have um, Hector Santiago and uh, Andrew Heaney uh, rounding out the rotation. The Angels have a lot of depth. I'm not sure how good this depth is, but what they're really trying to do is showcase uh, names like Wilson and Santiago. The Angels would really like to stoke up some spring trade trade. Ugh, trade interest in these names. They need a left fielder. They need some depth. And um, these are the names they would like to peddle. Um, unfortunately, this leaves Skaggs along with Matt Shoemaker and Nick Tropiano on the outside looking in. I actually think all three of those names might be better than some of the names the Angels have, have listed as the front runners. So it's going to be an interesting spring for the Angels. And uh, that's a curse in some cultures, right? May you live in interesting times. Uh, of the three of them that you mentioned, which of, uh, which of them do you think is the first one to go into the rotation should someone falter? Um, that's a real good question. I think it's going to depend on how Skaggs does this spring. He's 18 months off Tommy John surgery, so that works in his favor. Um, but he's going to have to show some sharpness. I wouldn't be surprised if they have him ticketed to go to the minors for at least a month or two while they shake things out. Um, I think if Shoemaker is healthy, he may be the first name in since, again, they do seem to do this on a, on a seniority thing. But it really depends on how everyone's pitching, obviously. Um, uh, performance is going to count. It always does in March, uh, no matter what people say. Quickly, before we leave the Angels, I saw a story in my local paper uh, earlier this week that said Mike Trout wants to steal more bases again, and he, he said it's a matter of confidence rather than anything else. Uh, of course, we hear a lot of stuff in spring training that we classify as noise rather than news. But to me, it is a, a significant statement by Mike Trout, given his position on the team. Uh, if he says, I want to steal more bases, would you think that they're going to let him try to steal more bases? Yeah, I think they will, just because, again, you're talking about a team that finished 12th in AL scoring last year. They haven't improved themselves this offseason in that regard. Um, and I think there is something to be said um, uh, to what Trout's, uh, Trout's referring to here. I, I watched him a lot last year, and he did not look comfortable on the base paths at all. Don't know why. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he steals another 10 bases uh, and maybe gets back into the 20s this year. I don't think you're going to see him steal 40, 50 bases again. I think that's out of the question. I Personally, I hope he surprises me, both uh, from a from a fanboy standpoint and the fact that I own him in one of my keeper leagues, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen. He said in the article also that one of his main goals was to get himself into scoring position so Albert Pujols could drive him in, and, and uh, I guess he figures if he's on first and steals second, that's going to help Pujols. If this is true, should we be raising Albert Pujols' stock a little bit? 
Well, Pujols is interesting in that he's probably going to start the DL, um, or I'm sorry, start the season on the DL, uh, still recovering from uh, foot surgery to correct that uh, plantar fasciitis. I don't think he's going to be out for too long, but uh, obviously there's still a little bit of a little bit of concern and a little bit of risk there. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if 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 you look at Pujols' contact rate, he he, he did very well last year, made good contact, and he had a, a very tough. Uh, um, um, hit rate that, that affected his batting average. Now he's not as selective as he used to be. His hard contact rate isn't quite what it what once was. But uh, yeah, maybe we ought to be raising uh, Pujols' uh, value just a little bit if he's healthy. I talked earlier with Nick Nichols about the uh, this weird story going on with Dexter Fowler. He leaves the Cubs. He signs with Baltimore. Whoa, wait a second. I'm not signing with Baltimore after all, and everybody should be chastised for saying that I am starting. And back he goes to the Cubs. So I know that uh, it doesn't really matter for our purposes what goes on with Chicago as far as reacquiring Dexter Fowler, but they did also make a big free agent signing with right-hander Giovanni Gallardo signing. What are the ramifications of this for the Baltimore rotation? Well, if, if you look at just our, our playing time page where we at Baseball HQ, where we project um, how many innings starting pitchers are going to go and what the backup is, what the depth is. Baltimore is, is I was surprised when I when I looked at this. They're, they're pretty mediocre in terms of pitching. Uh, Kevin Gaussman probably has more upside than anybody there, and he still hasn't broken through yet. Gallardo slots in right now almost as the number two guy in that rotation, and, and given where he's gone, that's not, uh, given what he's done lately, I should say, that's, that's not particularly encouraging if you're an Oriole fan. Uh, Gallardo's strikeouts have pretty much fallen through the floor. He's become a ground ball pitcher. His control has always wavered in and out, uh, three and a half, uh, sometimes a little below three, but, but not very often. Um, this is a guy who last year in the second half had a 4.48 ERA. He was being batted around, uh, pretty regularly. Um, now playing in Camden Yard, um, um, I mean, that's, that's, and a, and a hitting, uh, a hitting division like the AL East. I sure wouldn't be chasing, uh, Giovanni Gallardo right now. One thing in his favor, he's always been a fairly high ground ball pitcher the last few years, around 50% ground balls and very low fly ball percentages under 30%. So that could help him avoid the long ball in that uh, homer-friendly park, especially for left-handed hitters. Interesting, too, don't you think, that Baltimore's rotation, for, uh, one through five, all right-handers? It's very interesting. I, I don't know how the, uh, I should have looked into that. I don't know how the AL East shakes out in terms of left-handed hitters, but it's something to consider if you're if you're looking at starting pitching. Could it be that Baltimore is planning some kind of, will muddle through with five and six-inning starters like Ubaldo Jimenez, Gallardo, guys like this, and then they'll fall into that bullpen, which is very quietly starting to look like a real strength of this club. They got Britton at the end. Uh, they got Darren O'Day re-signed. Uh, this Michael Givens, I don't know if we've talked about him on the show, but Michael Givens may have more skill than any of them. He's a real big strikeout ground ball guy. Uh, could they, and Brian Mattis has, has been effective in the pen as well. They could even use Dylan Bundy, perhaps, uh, in, in a bullpen role. Could they be embarking on a strategy that says, you know, we're going to go short on the starters and long on the bullpen? I think that's a really good observation. Uh, I'm looking at their bullpen right now on the player page, and uh, you're absolutely right, quietly, without much fanfare. That team has developed a, an extremely good bullpen, and, and you're right, I like Givens. In fact, we did talk about him either last week or the week before when we discussed uh, sleeper relievers. Um, Givens, uh, I, I think, is a potential closer down the road. Um, Darren Day is terrifically effective. Zach Britton, I mean, he came out of nowhere a couple of years ago to start closing for them, and he hasn't missed a beat since. They've got a lot of depth in that rotation. It could definitely make up for the short... I'm sorry, they've got a lot of depth in the bullpen that could make up for the shortcomings in the rotation. And if that if that is the strategy, and it's something, I guess, as uh, fantasy owners and fantasy advisors that we need to be keeping a close eye on, if it turns out to be the case, I think we have to notch down all the Baltimore starters because if they're coming out of games early, it increases the likelihood that they're going to get no decisions in a lot of a lot more of their starts. Yeah, good point. And 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 the real key will be to find out in the Oriole pen who's going to be trusted with multiple inning uh, relief relief appearances because I mean I mean. Wins obviously isn't a science, but if you're looking for 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 wins, one way to monitor is 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 the is the relievers who get high leverage uh, high leverage innings, but who can also go more than one inning per per appearance. They also have this guy Chaz Rowe. I don't really know a lot, an awful lot about him. We're projecting him to be a kind of a replacement level player, 
But uh, most of the rest of these guys I really like a lot. And as I said a moment ago, I think uh, Dylan Bundy could really fit into that two-inning role three times a week uh, pretty comfortably as he's still relatively young. Maybe it's a good chance for them to do what the Mets did many years ago with Nolan Ryan. Bundy is the wild card here. If he if he can get healthy or healthy enough to at least pitch out of the bullpen, um, he could be a force, clearly. And finally, uh, Jock, uh, the Cleveland Indians, not a big player in the free agent markets anymore, but they did make a signing uh, last week. Juan Uribe is going to play for the Tribe this year uh, as a third baseman. Uh, what's What are the upshots and ramifications of Juan Uribe signing? Well, you know, given Cleveland's options at third base, I, I didn't think this was a bad signing. I mean, it I mean, if you look at uh, Uribe's last three seasons, he's actually been pretty decent for the time that he's played. He's never gotten more than 400 at-bats, but but he's been quietly productive. Um, he's been a positive earner. Um, last year, he hit 14 home runs for the Mets, which really surprised me. Um, the two previous years, he hit more for average. Uh, he hit 311 in 2014. I mean, his peripherals don't look great, but he always seems to be doing something well. Um, and it, 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 before that, I mean, they had Giovanni Urshela, who who just didn't hit at all uh, last year. Uh, I think he hit uh, something like, what, uh, 225 and about 260 at-bats, a lot of soft contact. Um, I actually like... Um, um, Oh, it's escaping me now. Um, oh, Jose Jose Ramirez, uh, the uh, their utility infielder that was forced over to third base for a little while last year. Um, he um, he's a contact guy who who can steal bases. Um, not an ideal long term guy at third base, more of an infield utility or second base where Cleveland is is well covered. Um, but they didn't have a lot before they they acquired uh, Uribe. So um, well done, Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland needs some offense, and uh, who knows? Maybe maybe Uribe can do it again for them. Jock, some of the coverage that I saw I saw about this signing had to do more with Uribe's uh, clubhouse personality. He's a good chemistry guy. A lot of people were saying, kind of guy who brings a clubhouse together. Now I don't know that there was a problem in the clubhouse in Cleveland last year or in previous years that needed correcting. But the fact remains that if you have a guy in the clubhouse who can keep everybody loose, keep everybody kind of focused and, and energized, that maybe it's a it's a lift for all the players. Having said all that, I don't really believe in chemistry. I think talent and skill are way more important. But do you think there's anything to this idea that bringing in a good clubhouse guy can be kind of a rising tide that lifts all boats? Yeah, you know what? We touched on that, and, and you were there at uh, First Pitch Arizona in November when um, – um, we had the the writers forum that talked about high makeup players, and I think that's definitely a plus. And in marginal situations, that sort of a thing could even determine whether a guy makes a roster. I mean, Bob Euchre made made rosters as a uh, a second string catcher based on his defense and his personality for for many years. Nowadays, though, players are so skilled. I think when they looked at Uribe, it was it was definitely a plus at the end. You know, in terms of convincing them to to put him on the team. But but I, as you said, I think their third base issues were more pressing. That's the main reason he's on the club. I have to say, Baseball HQ is giving Juan Uribe a pretty aggressive um, valuation in the projections for a 4x4 type format, $16, for a 5x5, five five, $15. And that's, uh, that's some pretty decent value, and I wouldn't be surprised if he goes for a lot less. This is what I'm saying. Um, I'm not sure he's going to hit the home runs, but I, I could be wrong. I'm 14 home runs with New York. I don't know how that breaks down. New York isn't the easiest place to hit home runs. Um, at least uh, City, uh, what is it, City Field in New York? It's not great for home runs. I don't think Cleveland is particularly good for home runs, too. Um, I'm not sure Uribe is going to get a little bit injury prone occasionally as he gets older. He's going to miss a little bit of time. But um, I would, if you're looking for a third baseman, I wouldn't, I, I would definitely take a look at Juan Uribe in, in deeper leagues. Jock, uh, as far as the uh, park effects go, according to the baseballhq.com park effects charts, uh, City Field was a suppressor of right handed power by about 18%. And, uh, Cleveland plays neutral, so it could be a little bit of an uptick for Juan Uribe in as far as playing in a more favorable park for home run power, at least. Considering that, uh, now I see where the 18 home runs and 475 at-bats are, are coming from. Not sure he's going to make those 475 at-bats. We'll see. If, if he does, it'll be the most at-bats he's had in four years. But uh, again, if uh, if your team needs a third baseman, I, I like 
Juan Uribe. He's not going to be in your first couple of tiers, but if you're looking below that, uh, he might surprise you. Sounds great, Jock. Thanks a million for helping us out again this week, and we'll talk to you again next Friday. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis and the Speculator columnist at the site, and he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our Baseball HQ commentaries next on Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ reminding you that our First Pitch Forums are back for 2016. Join Ron Chandler, Jock Thompson, Todd Zola, myself, and more of your favorite Baseball HQ radio voices in these three-hour interactive seminars. These entertaining and highly engaging events are designed to give you the information you need to win your fantasy league in 2016. The Baseball Forecaster and BaseballHQ.com are both tremendous resources, but sometimes the best advice is live advice. So join us for a First Pitch Forum event in your area. We even have a special offer for Baseball HQ radio listeners. When registering for a First Pitch event at BaseballHQ.com, just use the coupon code RADIO2016 to save $5 on your admission. That's five bucks off your registration just for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. We're looking forward to seeing you live and in person at our first pitch of forum events this February and March. This year's tour includes some traditional stops and some new locations. Come out and join us. And there are still tickets available to join Ray and the other experts this weekend, Saturday, February 27th in Oak Brook, Illinois, Sunday the 28th in St. Louis. In March, the tour moves on. I think Foghat's opening for them, so that should be fun. Houston on March 5th, Atlanta the 6th, McLean, Virginia on the 11th. On the 12th, it's Saddlebrook, New Jersey, and Los Angeles. And on the 13th, the tour wraps up in Natick, Massachusetts. First Pitch Forums, a lot of information in a fun and entertaining package. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, Greg Pyron's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation looks at Madison Bumgarner, Billy Hamilton, and more players. Bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis looks at non-closer Lima targets. Talked about that with Nick earlier in the show. Roto columnist Frank Noto looks at stars and scrubs in keeper leagues. During the season, BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, full team coverage, and minor league scouting. And of course, preseason and in-season, there are the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, forecaster position profiles and master notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Dodgers right-handed pitching prospect Jose de Leon is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Now that pitchers and catchers have reported to camp, we continue to take a look at some of the prospects most worth watching this spring. The Los Angeles Dodgers made a lot of headlines this offseason, both for the players they signed and even more so for the players they didn't. As we head into spring, the Dodgers' number 4 and number 5 starter spots remain up for grabs. Veterans Alex Wood and Brett Anderson are the leading candidates to start the season in the rotation, at least until Hyun Jin Ryu is ready for action. But Anderson and Wood lack the upside of rookies Julio Urias and Jose De Leon. The 19-year-old Urias has received a lot of preseason hype, but Jose De Leon is more experienced and will likely be first in line if one of the veterans falters. The 23-year-old De Leon continues to emerge as one of the better pitching prospects in the National League after not being drafted until the 24th round of the 2013 draft. Since then, De Leon has worked hard to get into better shape, and his fastball now sits in the 91-94 to mile-an-hour range, topping out at 96. He also mixes in a plus 83 to 85 mile an hour power curveball and an improved changeup. He does tend to pitch up in the zone, but has excellent movement on his fastball and good deception. Last year, De Leon went 6 and 7 with a 2.99 ERA between high A and double A, and he walked just 37 while striking out 163 in 114 in the third innings. Most likely, Damian will start the season at AAA, but the latest word is that he will get an extended look in camp, and people have been wrong by betting against DeLeon in the past. Even if he doesn't start the season in the Dodgers' rotation, he will still likely have an impact at some point and is worth rostering in NL-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. 
Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those valuable at-bats earnings pitched. In this week's edition, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at how Josh Hamilton's latest injury affects the Texas outfield situation and how Washington plans to fill the Ian Desmond hole. In what should be considered non-earth-shattering news at this point, Josh Hamilton is hurt again as he'll be out until at least May with a knee injury. Hamilton's lengthy injury pass suggests he's a major playing time risk even when he returns, which leaves a playing time gap in Texas's outfield. Justin Reggiano offers an MLB-ready alternative, and he's a particularly intriguing choice given the excellent power metrics he's shown in recent seasons to go along with solid speed. Reggiano struggles making contact, though, but he racked up double-digit homers and steals in 2012 and 2013. He hits lefties particularly well, so there's a good chance Reggiano will see some time this season. Texas also has numerous high upside prospects that could be in the mix as well, starting with Joey Gallo. Gallo is still a top prospect, even though he struggled in a short MLB cameo in 2015. We ranked him number 9 overall in this year's HQ100 prospect list. Gallo owns massive power, but his ability to stick will hinge on making contact against major Major League pitching. Gallo struck out in over half of his Major League at-bats last season. Don't give up on Gallo yet, though, as the power potential is definitely worth a late shot with a strong showing this spring. Nomar Mazzara is another guy who placed at number 21 on the HQ100 this offseason. Recent reports say that he'll be given a shot this spring as well. Mazzara is still just 20, but he moved quickly in Texas's system last year and racked up 81 at-bats in AAA. Mazzara also has an excellent power profile that could amount to 25-plus homers down the road, and he flashed some important plate approach gains in 2015 as well. Finally, there's Lewis Brinson, yet another top 30 overall prospect in Texas's system, according to BaseballHQ.com. Brinson hit at all three levels in the minors last year. He flashes an elite power-speed combination as he went nearly 20-20 last season. I'd say that Reggiano and Gallo have the inside track for playing time, as Mazzara and Brinson likely need more seasoning, though spring training will ultimately dictate who will start in Hamilton's place. On to the National League, we go to the nation's capital, where the club will be moving on from Ian Desmond at shortstop for 2016. CurrentBaseballHQ.com projections have Danny Espinosa, Treya Turner, and Stephen Drew all in the mix entering camp. Espinosa is the overwhelming favorite to at least start the year at short, and while a breakout is unlikely, Espinosa made some interesting gains in 2015. He already flashes an attractive power-speed combination, and Espinosa cut down on the strikeouts in a decent way in 2015. He's still a batting average risk, but as the baseball forecaster noted, Espinosa has an upside of 20 homers and 10 steals with full playing time. With an average draft position above 400, Espinosa makes for a great endgame flyer. Treya Turner, who's just 23, is a high upside prospect who has hit through all levels in the minors. Turner hit 322 with a 370 on base across AA and AAA last season, though he did struggle in a brief MLB cameo at the end of the year. Turner is likely to start the season in the minors to get some more reps, but if he continues to hit, he's going to get a shot to supplant Espinosa as soon as this summer. It'd be a smart move to stash Turner in, in a minors or reserve slot if you can in NL only leagues. And finally, Stephen Drew likely slots a utility infielder for Washington this season, but as Greg Pyron recently noted in a playing time tomorrow piece, that it could be possible for Drew and Espinosa to platoon at short, and this could happen given that Espinosa has historically struggled against left-handed pitching. Espinosa is still the favorite, though, and we'll see if that comes to fruition, but the solid bet here is to pay for Espinosa. He won't cost much, and there's a good chance for profit up the middle. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week.
Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers, Javier Baez and Doug Fister, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst, Alex Becky. On the surface, it may appear that Javier Baez will be the odd man out in a Cubs infield that already features Anthony Rizzo, Ben Zobrist, Addison Russell, and Chris Bryant, and an outfield that projects Kyle Schwerber, Jason Hayward, and Jorge Soler as starters. Without a DH in the National League, yet, where will Javier Baez play? How about everywhere? Well, almost everywhere. A second baseman by trade, Baez also played five games at shortstop and five games at third base as short 28-game call-up last season. Not to mention, Baez, playing in the Puerto Rican Winter League this offseason, received a handful of starts in center field. Is that a sign of things to come? It could be. However, perhaps Javier Baez's improvement in both batting average from 169 in 2014 to 289 in 2015 and improvement as contact rate from 55% in 2014 to 68% in 2015 are better indicators that Baez could be a solid contributor when taken late the draft. Remember, despite his 289 batting average and only 28 major league games in 2015, Baez's 68% contact rate places him with what we often refer to as the hackers of society. Although the baseball forecaster says the odds are against a major breakout in 2016 for Baez, it's important to remember that Javier Baez, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they're available in your league or your draft. Then again, if Cubs manager Joe Madden uses Javier Baez in a fashion similar to the way he used Ben Zobrist in Tampa Bay, Look for Baez's fantasy value to rise when he qualifies at multiple positions, including second base, third base, shortstop, and outfield, plus both corner infield and middle infield slots. Grab them late if you can. Next, let's travel to Houston, where we'll look at another player who may fall to the late rounds of your draft, newly signed Houston Astro, Doug Fister. Fister could be a decent value play in 2016, According to BaseballHQ.com, Fister earned $21 in 2014, but negative 3 in 2015. That's a loss of $24. But could Doug Fister, who dropped into negative territory, come right back up? A closer look shows that Fister's command ratio went from 4.1 in 2014, among the league's best, to a paltry 2.6 in 2015. Not so good. Maybe that's why Fister's walks plus hits per innings pitched, or WHIP, skyrocketed from 1.08 in 2014 to 1.40 in 2015. Plus, Fister's velocity, as measured by BaseballHQ.com, also dropped by over 2.5 miles per hour from 2013 to 2015. So why even look at a pitcher with a 432 ADP according to BaseballHQ.com? Last season, the Washington Nationals defense committed 90 errors in 162 games, or almost an error every other game on average, and opponents' batting average on balls in play against Fister jumped from 265 in 2014 to 316 in 2015. Not to mention, according to BaseballHQ.com, Fister went from a ground ball pitcher where 49% of all balls in play in 2014 were grounders to only 45% of all balls in play being grounders last season, making him a ground ball neutral pitcher in 2015. On the bright side, the Astros' defense, which ranked third in the American League for least errors committed in 2015, might be exactly what the 32-year-old Doug Fister needs to return to prominence. And if you want your team to return to prominence, consider adding Javier Baez and Doug Fister, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio... I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our forecaster position profile report. The Baseball Forecaster Annual includes extensive tools and cheat sheets for draft preparation. And during this preseason, Baseball HQ Radio will be letting you in on how the positions shape up from those forecaster lists. Players are rated in tiers. We have elite at the top, then gold, then stars, then regulars, mid-level, bench, and fringe. 
Here with a look at American League outfielders, BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Last week we warned about paying an unnecessary premium for the perceived position scarcity of middle infielders. This week, we advise that acquiring multi-category outfielders is the best way to deal with the reality of statistical scarcity. We'll begin with American League outfielders today and examine National League outfielders when Baseball HQ Radio adds Tuesdays to its podcast schedule next week on March 1st. Our research shows that outfielders are more productive than all other positions except first base and designated hitter. Outfielders also are more plentiful than all other positions except first base. Those two key facts form a strong pair of legs for your strategy to acquire hitting production. But since you need more outfielders than any other offensive position, and you want reliable multi-category contributors, you will need to be extra aggressive in building your outfield. First of all, the most productive multi-category players come from the outfield because the vast majority of stolen bases come from outfielders. 41 batters had 17 or more stolen bases in 2015. 28 were outfielders. That's 68% of the top producers. Secondly, since most leagues require five outfielders, there is no other batting position at which you need more players on your roster. Further, since you have more outfielders, it's more likely that one of them may be injured. So if your league has no bench reserves, it makes sense to draft an outfielder at UT so that if an injury does occur to one of your outfielders, you have a ready replacement and then you can fab the best available hitter into your vacated UT slot regardless of position. So with five or six of your 13 or 14 hitters coming from the outfield, you need to target outfielders very aggressively. We've emphasized before that players with higher reliability grades for health, experience, and consistency make better targets. So let's add that to our overview and see what kind of an outfield can be constructed in the American League. The top two tiers in the 2016 Baseball Forecaster Universal Draft Grid include 26 outfielders, with 12 from the American League. Make every effort to land one of those top 12, but avoid Michael Brantley, who is likely to miss about a month while recovering from off-season shoulder surgery and may not return to top form until much later. None of the three elites has all Bs or better on their reliability report cards. And Mike Trout is probably a budget buster in an auction league and the number one pick in a draft league. That makes Mookie Betts your primary elite target, especially if your league mates consider him a risk because his Major League Baseball sample is fewer than 1,000 plate appearances. Of the nine gold American League outfielders, four meet our reliability filter and three of those also meet our multi-category filter. Adam Jones and Justin Upton have straight A's though Upton will be costly in his initial American League season. Last year's injury-riddled season was a first for Carlos Gomez, so he may be undervalued. And Lorenzo Cain is emerging from years of failing to meet high expectations when he was younger. So your primary targets likely to carry the most reasonable cost are Betts, Jones, Gonzalez, and Cain. A secondary gold target is Corey Dickerson, though the reasons he's discounted moving from Coors Field and recovering from plantar fasciitis, make him pretty risky. Even if you do manage to acquire two of your targets from the top two tiers, you can't sit back and relax, because you'll need three more from the next two tiers, stars and regulars, and there are only 25 American League outfielders in those two tiers. To increase your odds, you'll have to do more than just hope the other owners in your league haven't heard or won't heed what we're saying in this podcast and fall prey to the perceived position scarcity traps set for middle infielders and catchers. You'll need a strategy to select your targets and tactics to acquire them. Of the seven-star American League outfielders, 33-year-old Shin Soo Chu, whose second-half resurgence may go unnoticed among his more meager overall numbers, and Adam Eaton are potential value plays. Among the 18 regular American League outfielders, 14 are well worth targeting. Stay focused on this tier because if you can't reach one of those seven stars, you'll need to come away with three of your targets from the regulars. Cole Calhoun, Kevin Pillar, and free agent Austin Jackson all have good reliability grades. Hyun Soo Kim from Korea could be a sneaky target if his Korean baseball organization's success transfers to Major League Baseball. But don't expect much power from him. Chris Davis, with a K, is on the other end of that spectrum as he heads to Oakland. His power plays even there, but don't expect many stolen bases from him. Pairing Kim and Davis would be a smooth move, 
and using Billy Burns or even Nori Aoki pair with Davis would work almost as well. Steven Sousa should rebound a bit. Byron Buxton may be ready. Alex Gordon played hurt all last year. Josh Reddick has increased his contact rate three years in a row. Aaron Hicks should play enough to help across the board. Melky Cabrera is okay, and Kevin Kiermeyer is improving. It's do or die for your outfield at the regular tier, because you need to end up with one or two from the three tiers above and two or three from this tier to avoid trouble. The definition of trouble in an American League outfield is having to find more than one outfielder from the 13 mid-level American League outfielders, or worse, the bench, or even, heaven forbid, the fringe. You won't see any of the multi-category targets that should be at the center of your outfield strategy. The most attractive mid-level targets are Abraham Almonte, Jackie Bradley Jr., and Cameron Mabin. If you have enough power elsewhere, you could pick up some speed here from Raj Davis, Gerard Dyson, Anthony Ghost, or Leonis Martin. Avoid the predicament of needing more than one outfielder from the mid-level by being extremely aggressive with your targets from the four tiers above. The bottom line for batting category production is this. Make reliable, multi-category outfielders your primary targets. We hope this position preview helps you build your auction budgets or plan your draft rounds for American League outfielders. Next week, in our first Tuesday show of the season, we'll look at National League outfielders. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst. During the regular season here at Baseball HQ Radio, he has our pitcher matchups report every week. And in the preseason, he's providing us with that baseball forecaster position preview. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the HBP of HBP. If you're like me, well, tough luck for you, I guess, but I bet we have something in common, an interest in quirky stats. The other day I was surfing around the web doing some preliminary research on the Pirates outfielder Starling Marte. You know, just clicking from one article to another. I spotted this little nugget. Marte has been in the big league since 2012 and played only 47 games his first year. In this short career, he is second among all major league batters in getting hit by pitches. Only Shin Su Chu is ahead of Marte since 2012 in getting nailed, drilled, or whatever other carpentry term you want to use to mean hit by a pitch. The thing that popped out about this little factoid is that Chu and Marte have both been pretty good offensive players and very useful fantasy players. That surprised me. I'm old enough that in my baseball upbringing, the face of the hit by pitch was Expo second baseman Ron Hunt, who was, to be charitable, not a tremendous offensive force. I was curious, so I looked up the rest of the 2012 to 2015 combined leaderboard for HBP, and what do you know? The other names at the top are also pretty darn good offensive players. After Chu and Marte, the top 10 include John Jay in third place, then Anthony Rizzo, Carlos Gomez, Matt Holliday, Adam Jones, Chase Utley, Prince Fielder, and Russell Martin. That's not a bad fantasy lineup. Numbers 11 through 20 on the list are also solid fantasy assets, well, except for Daniel Nava. That second 10 includes Alex Gordon, Andrew McCutcheon, Lucas Duda, and Mike Trout. All of this got me thinking whether I might have stumbled into that most welcome of fantasy finds, a weird indicator of possible unappreciated value. I started thinking that HBP might have a second meaning, hidden batter potential. One of the things we do here at BaseballHQ.com is convert counting stats to rate stats. So my first step was to convert hit-by-pitch to hit-by-pitch per 600 PA, or HBP 600. Using that metric, the history of HBP has been something of a roller coaster. Back in the handlebar mustache era at the turn of the last century, the HB 600 was around 7. This was probably because many games were played in the dark without lights, and nobody really cared about hitting batters because the ball was stuffed with feathers or cotton or something. A beanball war, if they had one, would have been more like a pillow fight. By 1941, the HBP 600 had sunk down below 2, then, and still, the lowest point ever. Maybe with the Second World War on, it seemed unpatriotic to bean another guy. I don't know. The rate climbed steadily to around 3 in the early 50s, 
then rattled around between 3 and 4 all the way up to the early 90s. Then it started climbing again, to a peak of 6.1 in 2001, led by Craig Biggio, who led the majors five different times. Some analysis suggests HBPs were more common because pitchers were hitting batters to avoid giving up steroid-aided home runs. I think maybe they were just ticked off. From 2006 to 2012, we saw another steady decline to the low fives in HBP 600. The last three seasons have been 5.0, 5.4, 5.2. Now this is a little off the topic, but my favorite result from my research was the 1966 season when Don Drysdale, a famously nasty pitcher who didn't mind beating hitters, hit 17 batters in 273 and two-thirds innings. His teammate, the glorious Sandy Koufax, pitched almost 50 more innings than Drysdale, and he didn't hit a single batter. The active pitching leader, if you're scoring at home, is John Lackey. If he hits his usual eight or nine guys this year, he'll climb all the way up into the top 50 all-time, passing such luminaries as Phil Necro, and Icebox Chamberlain. But back to batters. The next obvious step was to compare hitters to see if HBP helped them contribute in other ways. Obviously, since HBP is part of on-base percentage, there'll be a big benefit in on-base leagues. Looking at all the hitters in 2015 who had 100 or more plate appearances, and keeping in mind the overall HBP 600 for this group was 5.4, Players with no hit-by-pitch had a poor 294 aggregate on-base percentage. Players who were under the 5.4 average had a 321 on-base percentage. Batters over the 5.4 average were up at 327, and batters with double the HBP average, 10.8 per 600 or higher, had a 336 on-base. That was interesting, but as I said, somewhat expected. What was more surprising was the connection between HBP and slugging. Players with no HBPs, 375. Under the 5.4 average, 413. Over the 5.4 average, 420. And double the average, 426. If you add it up, the jump in OPS from no HBP batters to 10.8 plus HBP batters is 676 to 762, an 86-point gain. There are some possible reasons for the slugging connection. Let's point out right away there was no correlation with skills. Contact rates and walk rates were stable regardless of HPP level. So why the slugging connection? It could be that a batter who's willing to stand in closer to the plate and stay on a ball even if it's inside has better coverage and is able to drive the pitch away with authority could also be that the connection is actually working backwards, that many players are getting hit because they're good hitters and pitchers feel the need to challenge them with inside pitches. However it works, it pays off, and it pays off in home runs as well. Returning to our list, the players with no hit-by-pitches hit an aggregate 13 homers per 600, moving up to below average 16, above average 19, and double the average about 18.5, so pretty much the same thing. There's a home run advantage to hit-by-pitch batters as well. There's one other advantage to hitters. In the higher HBP cohort, they score more runs. 59 runs down at the bottom, 73 runs up at the top. That's a huge difference. Runs are the red-headed stepchild in fantasy baseball, and picking up runs per player per season could mean big gains in the standings. Needless to say, all of this is very preliminary. Proper research will need to take more care with controls, with larger samples, and probably less drinking. Someone will take on that research someday. It might even be me. In the meantime, I'm going to file this away as a small but potentially useful decision factor as I rate hitters for this year's draft. Now, I'm not going to boost a hitter solely because he has mastered the art of letting a baseball hit him. It all reminds me a little too much of those scam artists who walk out in front of moving cars, hoping to get run over and score an insurance payout. And while most HBP artists clearly know how to turn into a pitch so they take it on the back or the behind, I still worry about pitchers that could hit a batter in the hand, the wrist, or the elbow, or the head, of course. So I'm going to put my Rotolab flags on players with well above average HBPs. And if such a hitter appears in a tier of batters, his willingness to be plunked could be a reason for me to pick him or go a buck extra over a zero HBP guy. Here are a few names of the guys I'm going to be flagging. They're the batters who led Major League Baseball in 2015 in HBP 600. Brandon Geyer of Tampa, Derek Dietrich of Miami, John Jay of St. Louis, Rizzo, Youngho Jong of 
Pittsburgh, Alex Gordon, Corliss Corporan, Aaron Altier, Nava again, don't know about him, Yuri Perez of Atlanta was up there. And there are some other names to watch from 2015's HBP specialists. Marte, of course, Rugnetto Doors worth a look, Domingo Santana get hit enough, Mikey Matuk and Colton Wong also got hit, and Jose Abreu, who everybody seems to figure every year is not going to do what he did the year before, has a high enough HBP to make him well worth consideration. So don't be afraid to take one for the team in 2016, but keep in mind that any rate stat, including HBP 600, is not really useful unless the batter is likely to get enough plate appearances for the stat to pay off in actual numbers. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number four of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. We do appreciate it. I want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Forecaster Position Profiles analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. Hope you enjoyed Master Notes this week, and of course I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. And more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday as Baseball HQ Radio returns to twice-weekly production. Our guest expert will be a familiar voice to Baseball HQ Radio listeners. It's Todd Zola of MastersBall.com and now of Rotowire.com as well. That's Todd Zola on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.